Hi, my name is Winnie Tan, and you're listening to Monogatari Tales from Japan, a podcast where we talk about history, folklore, and the mythical creatures from the land of the rising sun. Picture this the sun rises over the horizon. And against a cloudless sky, a Japanese crane takes flight, wings of white feathers spread out against the blue. On the ground, another gazes out across the rice field and into the distance beyond. This is a scene from 100 Famous Views of Edo, a collection of ukiyoe woodblock prints produced in the Edo period. Created in 1857, The print depicted Mikawashima, an area we now know as Higashi Nippori, of Tokyo's Arakawa Ward. A picture of the area today would show train lines, apartment buildings, and convenience stores, all the elements of a modern Japanese town. In the Edo period, though, Mikawashima was a place where the cranes gathered during their migration in the winter months. In the same scene, we see a vast rice field. And a farmer makes his way towards the birds, buckets of feed balanced across his shoulders. The feeding of the cranes was part of tradition. As the cranes, or tsuru, flew in, the preparations began too for tsuru no onari. Here, the shogun would hunt a single crane to be presented to the court. But before the hunt takes place, the gathering cranes were fenced in. Well fed and taken care of. There can be no doubt about the otherworldly beauty and grace of the crane. Such an otherworldly creature was believed to live a thousand years, a symbol of luck and longevity. Today, the crane can be seen on anything from folding screens, kimono, and even corporate logos. The crane remains an important aspect of Japanese culture. In traditional art and stories, the crane is often portrayed as graceful and mysterious, an enamoring creature that captures the hearts of men, women, and children alike. Now, stay tuned because here's an old folktale about a man and a crane. Once upon a time, in a little hut up in the mountains, lived a young man who led a simple life. Each morning, The young man walked through the forest, gathering wood and selling it at the nearby village. It was a meager amount, but it was enough to get by on his own. It was snowing one morning in early winter, and the young man was making his daily rounds in the woods when he heard a cry in the distance. It sounded like a creature in pain, and he rushed to investigate. Navigating through the forest following the creature's cry, The young man arrived at a clearing. There, in the snow, lay a beautiful white crane. She had been shot, and the arrow was lodged firmly in her wing. Stooping over her, the young man held the crane in his arms and gently worked the arrow out. Then he cleaned the wound the best he could. The crane remained still as he worked, and when he was done, He set her gently back down onto the snow and stepped away. As he did, the crane spread her wings and rose swiftly into the air, where she circled once around the young man and disappeared into the clouds. 
Later that night, the weather took a turn for the worse. Snow fell in heavy droves, and the billowing wind rattled the little house in the mountains. Inside, the young man was warming up by the fire when there was a knock on the door. With only a moment's hesitation, the young man stood up and opened the door. Before him was a beautiful young woman, all by herself. She said she had lost her way, and asked if she could stay the night before continuing on her journey the next morning, when the heavy snow lets up. The young man was only happy to oblige, quickly beckoning her to sit by the fire while he prepared a bowl of hot soup. Sheltered and warm now, the young woman thanked him profusely for his kindness. In return, the young man smiled and said she was welcome to stay as long as she liked. The next day, snow continued to fall heavily, the forest blanketed in a sheet of white. Days passed, and the layer of snow only grew thicker, while the weather showed no signs of letting up. The young woman continued her stay with the young man, and in return for his hospitality, helped with the cooking and cleaning. As for the young man, he had begun to develop a fondness for the woman and enjoyed the company. One morning, when he contemplated how much of a shame it would be when the young woman eventually had to leave, she looked at him and asked if he would take her as his wife. The young man looked at the woman that stood before him and said that there was nothing much he could give her as he was a poor man. She said as long as they could be together, she didn't mind. So they took each other by the hand and from that day on, they became husband and wife. Life together in the mountain was a happy one. Despite the marital bliss of the new young couple, reality wasn't quite as simple. It continued to be a long, hard winter, and there were days so cold and snowy that it was impossible for the young man to gather wood in the forest like he usually did. Their supplies dwindled with two mouths to feed, and as the new year approached, the couple had no money left and very little food. The young man told his wife that he was worried. If things continued this way, they would quickly run out of food too. They were at a loss on what to do when the young woman thought of the old loom that sat in a little room at the back of the house. It had belonged to the young man's mother, but remained untouched since she passed away years ago. The young woman said she would weave some cloth, and in return, the young man was to promise one thing. He must promise never to look in the room while she was at work. While he thought the request strange, the young man agreed, and without another word, the young woman nodded, disappeared into the room, and the door slid shut behind her. For three days, the only sign of the young woman in the house was the muffled clacking of the loom through the door. On the third night, the door to the room opened, and the young woman emerged tired and noticeably weaker than she was when she had entered. In her arms were three bolts of the finest, whitest cloth, which she handed over to her husband with a little smile. For you to sell at the market, she said. The next day, the young man took the cloth straight to the house of the richest man in town. When he returned in the evening, he brought with him three bags filled to the brim with grains of rice. 
Overjoyed, the young man thanked his wife. What he brought home was enough to survive the winter. In fact, the rich man was so impressed with the quality of the cloth that he asked if the young man could bring more the next day. Think of all the money we could get from it, said the young man as he told his wife about the wonderful day he just had at the market. The young woman thought silently for a moment and with a sad smile said that she would begin weaving right away. Before the door to the little room closed again, she made the young man promise once more not to look inside under any circumstances. And this time he happily agreed. That night and all of the next day, the young woman stayed in the room, the sound of the loom being the only sign of her once again. This time, the young man noticed that it sounded slower, heavier. This worried him, and when a pained cry came from the other side of the door, he decided that promise or no promise, he had to check if his wife was alright. Despite the shelter of the hut, what awaited him in the room left the young man frozen in his place. His wife was nowhere in sight. Sitting at the loom instead was a white crane. The crane looked weak and exhausted, and what was supposed to be a thick coat of white feathers was thin and patchy in places, pink flesh peeking through. It was in that moment when the crane's eyes met the young man's, and with a sad look and a whimper, the crane turned back into his beautiful wife. The young man's mouth hung agape, but no words came. The young woman spoke instead. She explained that she had wanted to give something back in return for the young man saving her life that day. So she tracked him down and became his wife, hoping that she could be of service to the young man, because early that winter in the forest clearing, she had been the crane that lay there. The young man could do nothing but apologize for what he had unwittingly put her through. He didn't know. He couldn't possibly have known. It was too late, however. She couldn't stay with someone who knew her secret, even though she had hoped that they would be together forever. The couple made their way to the front door of the hut they once shared, the young woman leading the way. Trailing behind her at her feet, the young man begged, groveled, and apologized in his desperate effort to convince her to stay. It was only when she stepped out of the doorway and into the snow that she looked back at her husband one last time, and he knew that despite his protestations, it was not to be. Snow was falling outside, as it was the morning the young man found the crane, when it was just a crane. He had grown to love the woman before him, but in an instant she was gone. Above his head, a beautiful white crane soared. It couldn't speak, but let out a sorrowful call as it circled once around the young man. Before he could gather himself to say goodbye though, with a gentle flap of wings, the crane disappeared up and into the clouds. The young man never saw his crane wife again. If you heard the word origami, there's a high chance that the first image that pops into your head is the folded paper crane. There seems to be something special about the origami crane in particular that transcends age and culture. No matter who you are or where you're from, 
it's hard not to be taken with the little paper creature. After all, the crane represents good luck and longevity, and its paper counterpart seems to carry an inexplicable charm. You can easily fold yourself a symbol of luck, but the origami crane holds something more than that. It carries a wish. August 6, 1945, 8.15 a.m., Hiroshima. Two-year-old Sasaki Sadako was in her own home. It was a seemingly normal day. In town, people went about their daily lives. Less than a minute later, there was a bright flash, and the thousands of people who were there blinked out of existence. Buildings that once stood disintegrated into rubble. 31,000 feet up in the clouds, U.S. aircraft NLRG had dropped the deadliest weapon ever deployed in the history of mankind. The atomic bomb was called Little Boy. Fire and destruction followed, an entire city virtually wiped out in an instant. As civilians lay injured, maimed and dead, what fell from the sky was black rain. The infant girl Sarako at her house, just 1.7 kilometers from the heart of the blast, was alive and unharmed, though black rain pelted down upon her. To be breathing where so many others weren't, in a city already scorched and still burning, she was one of the lucky ones. Sasaki Sarako lived, and as her city and country slowly repaired itself in the years following the war, she grew up safe and healthy. They said she was great at sports. At 11 years old, she was a fast runner, an athlete, a member of the school's relay team. Her dream was to become a junior high school sports coach. Early winter that year, the otherwise healthy Sadako developed mild symptoms of a cold. Then, lumps formed behind her ears and on the back of her neck, growing bigger as time went by. When her face began to swell, family began to suspect that it wasn't just a cold. Earlier medical examinations yielded no conclusive results nor relief from her symptoms, and by the end of January, purple spots had appeared on Sadako's left leg. Yet, no one had understood the severity of the disease that was spreading within Sadako. It wasn't until February when the family sought medical help once more at the Red Cross Hospital in Hiroshima. A test revealed that her white blood cell count was six times higher compared to that of a normal child's. They diagnosed her with acute malignant lymph gland leukemia. If she was lucky, she had a year. Many in Hiroshima referred to this as Genbakusho, or atomic bomb sickness one of the many aftereffects of the radiation that continued to plague those exposed to the initial blast. Sadako wanted to live. She was but a young girl with hopes and dreams, yet her days were spent lying in a hospital bed with her own mortality hanging over her head. They say that a thousand origami cranes grants the folder a single wish. For Sadako, her wish was loud and clear. One day, she began folding and in a month, she had a thousand. She strung them up with a single thread, and from the ceiling of Sadako's room at the hospital hung the cranes she had so fervently folded. 
It was August 1955. A thousand paper cranes, a thousand symbols of a little girl's will to live, and she wasn't going to stop there. Even as her body deteriorated, Sarako continued to fold 300 more. But on the morning of October 25th, just two short months after she had begun her project, Sarako breathed her last. Despite all her efforts, it seemed like her cranes had failed her. Her wish simply wasn't to be. Had it all been in vain? It would have taken a miracle to save Sarako. It was the 1950s. She wasn't the only one affected by the after effects of the atomic bomb, but she was one of the first. Tried as the doctors have, the power of a thousand cranes was still limited to the physical laws of the universe. Sarako never grew to be 13. When news of her death reached Noboricho Elementary School, a place she had been such a big part of, students and peers thought that something ought to be done. The campaign to erect a monument to memorialize Sarako and the children who had lost their lives to the atomic bomb and calling for world peace was launched. Students created and distributed flyers and organized fundraising events. As the word spread, donations for the cause came in from across the country. The monument, unveiled in Hiroshima two and a half years later, showed Sasaki Sadako standing at the top. In her outstretched arms, she holds an origami crane up to the sky. She was a young girl who never got to grow old. A wish made on a thousand cranes wasn't enough to save her life. But today, Sasaki Sadako lives. Millions around the world know her story, and her legacy will be passed on for generations to come. And now we've come to the end of this episode of Monogatari Tales from Japan. Thank you for listening. <laughs>